Happy Friday evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. You just watched Bill Maher in a one-on-one -on -one with Jake Tapper. Stick around until 11.30 Eastern time, and we'll bring you an even more unplugged Bill Maher. You'll see what he and his guests talk about after the show. That's overtime with Bill Maher right here on CNN. Until then, we've got a lot to talk about, so we're going to show you this new video taken by one of the Americans kidnapped in Mexico, and it shows what was happening in the car right after they crossed over the border. Then there's a two-hour gap of time before they're surrounded by the cartel. We'll tell you what we know about where they went. And George Santos strikes again. This time he's accused of running a credit card skimming operation in Seattle. I'm innocent, never did anything of criminal activity, and I'm no mastermind of anything. Plus, the last Oscar ceremony brought us the slap heard around the world. So what's in store for this Sunday night's broadcast? Our panel brings us a preview. So let's meet our panel. Here with me, my this week work husband, LZ Granderson, <laughs> my favorite fearful flyer, Molly Jean Vast, also Mondaire Jones, the former congressman with the most infectious laugh ever, and former Senate candidate and big tipper, Joe Pinion. <laughs> and joining us, someone I don't well know well enough yet to give a pet name, retired NYPD detective, Mark Claxton. Um, Detective, thanks so much for being here with us. Thanks to all of you. Detective, I do want to start with you about the new information that we have about the Americans who were kidnapped in Mexico, because it turns out that one of them in the car was live streaming part of their road trip into Mexico. And so they crossed over the bridge from Brownsville into Matamoros. And let me just play you a little portion of what they were seeing and saying. Basically, he's just he's taping what they're seeing. He's saying, you all don't know what it's like in Mexico to his friends or whoever's watching that live stream. And then what happens is that's at 918 in the morning because there's a timestamp on all of that. And we CNN has been able to geolocate that. That's at 918 a.m. Then there's a two hour um, break in the time period when uh, it looks like authorities don't know what was happening with them, except that they were not going in the right direction of the doctor's office. And then we pick up again at 11, 12 a.m. That's when a gray Volkswagen begins following their van. And then half an hour later, they're surrounded by the cartel. So put on your detective hat and tell us what all that means to you. What it means is uh, we should be in for a lot of uh, conflicting and contradictory stories about some of the events surrounding what ha what uh, what's occurred down there in Mexico, because in large part we're we're outside of of, of control of the investigation and uh, much of the information that's coming forward. There's going to be a lot of you can really predict and count on some contradictory information coming forward, and uh, we sitting here in the United States have to really rely heavily on Mexican authorities who have uh, notoriously been subjected to uh, corruption allegations, uh, uh, you know, throughout time. So it's a challenge uh, that uh, the investigation will have until the State Department uh, and perhaps uh, the DEA with its uh, uh, access, its bilateral arrangements that we have and maybe immigrant and uh, customs enforcement uh, can have some uh, individuals embedded into the investigation itself so that we can, of course, trust but verify the information coming out of Mexico. 
And Detective, what about that two-hour break in time? Can't GPS or phone data capture where they were? Yeah, they should be, uh, based on, you know, pinging uh, the phone pretty much be able to uh, detail their travels for that two-hour period of time. And that's what is possible as we move forward. All of a sudden, you'll get more information about uh, uh, their whereabouts during that two-hour period. Um, but once again, that's part of the frustration that we're going to have because this investigation is outside of uh, U.S. control at this time. Yeah. Um, Detective, stick with us, if you would. I want to bring him on panel. Um, Congressman, do we trust the Mexican authorities to tell us the truth about this? We can't trust the Mexican authorities to control their own people in the, in, in this, in the country of Mexico, right? You, this is a place where the cartels literally have control over parts of the country, which, you know, candidly is an indication of a failed state, like in, in, in the normal mm-hmm. context. I, I was listening to the president of Mexico respond to comments made by Lindsey Graham about sending in support, military support. And let me be the first to say I, I don't support sending in ground troops, but I do think there should be intelligence sharing. I mean, we certainly help in other countries when there are insurgents like the cartel in Mexico. And isn't there intelligence sharing? I, I would hope so. I would hope so. But, you know, I mean, I think Mexican authorities now have an interest in, in appearing as though they did everything properly leading up to this point. Joe, what do you say? Uh, look, I, I think the problem is that we have to fill the void, right? There's a two-hour gap uh, in what the whereabouts of those poor victims were. Uh, there's also a, a multi-day gap in far as what the news is going to be able to talk about. So now you see the uh, suspicion rumor mill. Were the people engaged in some nefarious behavior? We have no idea what happened. What we do know is quite clear that all roads lead to the fact that we have not secured the border, that we have surrendered gra- vast portions of uh, the Mexico border uh, to the cartels, and we have not interrupted that flow of fentanyl coming from China by care of the Chinese Communist Party that is bringing death to the doorsteps of urban, suburban, and rural mothers alike. So I think that has to be the focus until this administration and this country writ large takes that threat of the cartels, of the fentanyl, and all the intricacies related uh, to that threat. Uh, Nothing else is really going to matter. And unfortunately, people like those poor victims will continue to die. On the fentanyl front, um, this week, Michigan made the biggest bust in their state history of fentanyl. I'll read to you. I'll give you some perspective on this. The Michigan State Police say this was the largest seizure of fentanyl on a traffic stop in Michigan. This was a routine traffic stop. One kilo. So they found, um, well, I'll keep reading. One kilo can produce approximately 500,000 fentanyl pills with a street value of approximately 1.5 million. In total, this seizure will undoubtedly save lives as it disrupted the distribution of around 3 million fentanyl-laced pills with a total street value of $9 million. Just incredible, the amount of a routine traffic stop, LZ. I mean, yes, but the good thing is, is that it was stopped, right? Mm-hmm. And I know that the, our mind wants to wander and go, what about everything that wasn't caught? But I think it's good that we can say, hey, we're doing something and perhaps we can build on this. And I just want to go back to this notion that what Lindsey Graham said in terms of possibly sending in troops. Don't we occupy enough countries? Like, we have to find other ways besides military to negotiate and to work with our neighbors on this hemisphere as well as around the world. And as soon as I read that, I just thought, holy cow, you know, what brown country aren't we going to invade? Well, I mean, as you know, (laughs) Senator Graham is um, 
leans towards <laughs> military. <laughs> no, I mean, he leans towards right, being, believing that military yeah. might can make right. Yes. And I think that um, part of what he's leaning into is we haven't solved the fentanyl right. issue. So what right. is the solution? We're not, we're obviously not negotiating enough. Obviously, right. Mexico isn't cracking down. So what is the solution here? Oh, I'll solve it. Oh, yes. please. I have, <laughs> I have many oh, solutions. Oh, really? Yes, yes. I have many solutions to drug problems. Uh, no, I would say, I mean, I think what's scary about this is it, this could turn into an international incident with our neighbors, right? And the Mexican president does not seem excited to help. It's, you know, there's a lot of blame going around. And I think that is ultimately could be the larger and scarier implication of all of this. I mean, I, just to that point, I, I think almost the opposite, right? I mean, the cartels have gone so far as, right. again, sending a candy gram and uh, we shall not ever do this again. And here are the people that we've put forth uh, that are going to claim responsibility. So the cartels don't want to break up the money chain. The right. president of Mexico uh, doesn't want to make sure that their economy, which uh, Dirty Secret is running in large part in conjunction with with the cartels right. and the drug money broken up. So, again, whether we're talking about Baltimore, Chicago, right. or the southern border, no one cares about the drugs. People care about Americans and the bodies piling up. So right. I think that's what we need to focus on. But it's scary because there are neighbors. I mean, and you don't want to have... I mean, the goal is to not have a military conflict, so I know... I, I, to be fair to Lindsey Graham, I don't think he was talking about invading. I think he was talking about, like, hey, do you guys need help with this? Terry <laughs> Lake was talking about invading, so I'm not going to put it over, you know, yeah, the yeah. fact that someone yeah. from that party may be actually thinking along the line, because we had a candidate who was very, very close to becoming governor of a border state right. saying, send it, troops. But so Carrie Lake thinks she is governor right now. <laughs> I'm sure she does. Look, I, I think that, again, <laughs> it, it's this weird paradigm where if you can find one Republican that believes anything, it's now applied to the entire party. If you can find a oh, caucus in the halls of Congress uh, that are Democrats <laughs> that believe in a position, somehow that's their position and no one else's. So I just think, that's, again, well, uh, you to know, the Congressman's point, that Yes, there are individuals that are more apt uh, to want to escalate the situation. But at the end of the day, the one thing that we should all be able to agree on, it starts with an insecure border. It starts with the fact that every single month we have enough fentanyl coming into this country to kill every man, well, woman, and child. Well, yes, and it starts with demand. I mean, is what Mexico would say. It starts with demand. We also have right. to yeah. But no, but I, I, is it the, like, yeah. Policing the country in Mexico is, is, a, is a, internally, is, is a, in the interior, is different from like a, a border issue, though, yeah. right? I right. mean, we're, right. we're talking about a government that really gives tacit approval, unfortunately, to the cartels. Right. Uh, and and who relies on it on it for economic growth and and that kind of thing and so I want to I want to separate those issues. We do have to address the border, but I don't I don't think that like solve like putting up a wall for yeah, example. I think to be clear, quickly, it's the money. It's always the money. The money is right. coming from the drugs. And yes, I believe that it's different from how do you run a country and how do you secure a border. But there are many reasons why the fentanyl is coming in. It's the strain on the border, the various points in between the actual ports of entry uh, that we know that things are coming in illegally. It's not just the migrants. It's also the drugs. Okay. And we have to do everything together to get that. Panel, thank you very much, Detective. Thank you as well for your expertise. Meanwhile, a 48-hour bank run leads to one of the largest failures of a financial institution in American history. What this means for you and your bank, next. All right, Silicon Valley Bank collapsed today after a 48-hour bank run. This is now the second largest failure of a financial institution in U.S. history. This happened after the bank sold a bunch of securities at a loss and said it would sell billions in new shares to shore up its balance sheet. That caused panic among venture capital firms. The bank, SVB, is a big lender to the tech industry. Here to explain in English what all of this means for all of us, CNN economics and political commentator Catherine Rampell. Catherine, great to see you. Can you tell us what really, I mean, help us understand in layman's terms what caused this bank run? 
I will do my best. Basically, what happened was this was kind of a foreseeable consequence of rising interest rates. This bank um, happened to have bought a lot of assets that seemed safe at the time. Um, these are mortgage-backed securities, which I think most people hear and they think means something really risky. In this, in this case, it was not. But the problem was, as interest rates went up, this became essentially a, a less valuable thing to hold because these were long-dated assets. Um, and the, 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 I'm thinking of a, a simple way to put this. But basically, the things that the bank invested in turned out to be worth a little bit less as, yeah, as, as time went on. Um, and as a result, there was fear that the bank uh, essentially wasn't worth it, didn't have as much um, uh, value, uh, didn't have as much in assets as people would have liked. Uh, that became kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because people got nervous, the depositors got nervous and started pulling their money out of the bank. And you get basically a, a classic bank run. If you've ever seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, yes. It's kind of the George same. Bailey, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was feeling for... Um, this that that is my one point of reference is my point. Um, and so, Kevin, <laughs> what what does this mean for the rest of us and our banks? Well, to be clear, this is not on the level of what we saw during the 2007, 2008 financial crisis. This bank does not appear to be nearly as systemically important as Lehman, for example. It's still not a good thing. There are a lot of depositors who are, you know, these big Silicon Valley startups who are now going to have trouble making their, their uh, payrolls this month as a result. There is now some contagion already to other banks. You know, people say, hey, that happened over there. Potentially that could happen at First Republic Bank or one of these other banks that we have recently seen in the last couple of days. Um, depositors get nervous about stock prices have fallen quite a bit. So I don't think this is nearly as bad as had been the case, again, over a decade ago. But if you are one of the customers of this bank, it is obviously uh, very scary for you, particularly if you had a deposit that was not fully insured. Uh, the FDIC only insures deposits up to $250,000. A lot of the depositors had more money than that in the bank. Very bad news for you. And of course, if you are at one of these other banks um, that is currently experiencing some of this financial contagion, uh, I understand why you would be nervous as well. Okay, Catherine, uh, one more big picture question. So um, there are a lot of confusing indicators in the uh, reports today. So what do we need to know about inflation and the economy? The economy month after month has outperformed expectations. For the last 11 consecutive months, the jobs numbers have come in much stronger than had initially been predicted. And it's been a little bit of a puzzle about why. Similarly, the inflation numbers last month also came in hotter than predicted. It sounds like the jobs numbers being better than expected would be, would be a good thing, right? Normally, we want as many jobs being created as possible. The problem right now is that that indicates that the economy may be overheating or maybe at least um, uh, hotter than the Fed is comfortable with, in which case it would be much more difficult to get inflation down. The upshot of all of this is the Fed may need to raise interest rates more aggressively than it had already planned to do in order to get inflation down, which in turn raises the risk of a recession um, because it's very difficult to get the to get interest rates just high enough to cool inflation but not so high that it it basically kills the economic recovery altogether it's, it's hard to calibrate okay Catherine thank you for all that stick with us uh, my panel is back in other 
um, economic news connected to politics. I want to talk about what Nikki Haley um, proposed today. Oh, I look forward. Oh, good. I'm glad you guys are laughing. I look forward to what you what your thoughts are on this, because she's running for president, as we all know, the former governor. <laughs> wow. Wow. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So she said something that I think is a bold Proposal that not many politicians will say out loud because they know it's not that popular. Yeah. So, or that it's bad policy. <laughs> right. Okay. I mean, that's part that you can't get bad policy. So it's basically it. raising the age um, of retirement and Social Security. So listen to what she said. Those that have invested in should keep what they have. We shouldn't in any way jeopardize those that are already expecting something. This is about the new group coming in. So this what's is the, making I'm sorry, sure Governor, what is the new group? What, what, I'm sorry, what's the new group? Is it, are you telling those 50 and over, you're safe, 50 and under, you're on? I, I just use that arbitrary number. What are you saying is a group that what you're saying, that's going to change? It's the new ones coming in. It's those in their 20s that are coming in. You're coming to them and you're saying the game has changed. Why is that not a real proposal? I mean, in France right now, they're protesting, raising the, I mean, I But don't we have to do something? I mean, mean, for for 20-year-olds coming in, don't we have to rethink this and maybe recalibrate? I mean, it's wildly unpopular. So I... I think it's great that she's going to run on this. Good luck to her. I mean, it's like running on, you know, people love Social Security and Medicare. They love it. And they don't want anyone messing with it. That's the one thing we've learned. That and Obamacare. People love it. Well, yeah, maybe it's unpopular, but it's also math. We are right. running out of this fund. Yes, we, we are. But I think her version needs a lot more statistics and research. The thing that I have a problem with isn't that she's trying these ideas out. They just seem to be arbitrary numbers without any sort of data to back up why she picked those numbers. And as you saw, the new group tells us nothing except there's maybe another boy band coming. She I'm, clarified that it was 20-something. <laughs> yeah, but 20-something still doesn't tell us anything. Why? Why 20-somethings and not say, you know, when you are when you start school? Well, or, but also, why not raise taxes on the wealthy? Yeah, this, I mean, her, there's, the, there's an right, elephant in the right, room right. here. I mean, Nikki well, Haley's proposal is not the only proposal. It's why Democrats have not adopted it, because it's bad policy. What she is proposing, let's be very clear, is a cut. Maybe not for people who are, who are currently in their 60s, but certainly for their children or grandchildren. And, and so this is what... Democrats mean when they say that Republicans want to cut benefits to Social Security (laughs) and Medicare. And then people like Nikki Haley said, no, we don't want to do that. (laughs) We just want to cut it. And then it turns out, oh, well, her version, at least, is to cut it for people who are younger who will eventually be beneficiaries, you know, God willing, of Social Security and Medicare. When all you have to do is raise taxes on billionaires and millionaires so that there's with respect to Social Security so that there's no longer a, a, a cap on that. Joe? Specificity of language is important. I I think that our political discourse across the political spectrum, uh, people like to change the definitions of words when it suits them. I think it is a responsible conversation to have to simply say that FDR enacted Social Security for the purpose of having people who had outlived the point which most people died not spending their final days in squalor. So I don't think it's unreasonable for us to have public discourse around the fact that people are living longer and that if America 
America is not just the words on paper, but a promise we make to our citizens and to the world. We should honor the obligations that we currently have, but we should also have a conversation with those who are 17, 18, 19, and 20 about what does your retirement situation look like and what is the best way to do that. That's not crazy. That shouldn't be, uh, I, I, I would agree, it's a terrible way to kick off a presidential right. campaign. But I also think that it's... It, it's, it's <laughs> At least we can agree on that. It's right. not crazy, but, 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 but it's, it's also- not popular. I mean, the reality is she has to win. Well, and I, I don't well, know how you win on that. Well, of course, well, I don't know how popular. anyone's going to win the Republican nomination <laughs> besides Donald J. Trump. That's a different conversation right. for yeah. a different day. But El- right. Yeah, Elsie. You're right. We should have a responsible conversation, but this conversation needs to be started responsibly. <laughs> and this is someone who started off before that ageist attack, and I do see this as an ageist attack, was the original ageist attack, which is let's have competency tests for people 75 and over. <laughs> Remember, she's like on this age kick. <laughs> and is this now an ageist ev- attack on 20-somethings? And it's like it's, like it's everybody but think. her generation. Like, everyone else but her generation needs to do something about these problems. Well, look, I, I do think that it stems from a very real... Uh, one political problem, I think industrial problem, and I just think reality, which is that you have a generation that precedes Generation X uh, that is hanging on longer than anyone thought uh, possible. When you're looking at the Fortune 500, com- com- yeah. Fortune 500 companies, when yeah. you're looking at the people who are in power, uh, we're going to most likely have uh, the Trump and Biden part <laughs> we, due. We, we got the uh, problem. I mean, <laughs> what do you think is the solution? I, I, I like the idea of raising the taxes, yeah. but but... To be honest with you, I also think we need to be talking about where are we spending and where can we make cuts in the spending as well. And, and military, to me, is number one. You're talking about someone who very, very proudly identified waste in the defense budget, lobbyist giveaways, and who for that reason has voted against wasting taxpayer dollars on areas that actually don't secure our borders and, and protect our national security. And, and, but, but we should not be cutting Medicaid and, right. and, and right. food stamps, which is what Republicans are talking about. Right. Right. When, when the vast majority of people on these programs actually have full-time jobs, it turns out, right. and are right. still unable to make ends meet. And I, all right, we, guys, we, we kind of got off track. No, I like this. It's a spicy <laughs> conversation, but I do have to wrap it right now because we have a lot more to talk about. So listen, everyone, there's a new allegation against Congressman George Santos, and it's a whopper. (laughs) George Santos strikes again. Politico publishing a sworn statement from an alleged roommate, former roommate of Santos, who told the FBI that Santos oversaw an illegal credit card skimming operation. This roommate, Gustavo uh, Trejala, uh, alleged in his statement that George Santos taught him how to clone ATM and credit cards, and then that the two agreed to a 50-50 split of the (laughs) proceeds. Uh, Trejala pleaded guilty to access device fraud in 2017 in Seattle, and he was deported to Brazil. Elsie Granderson and Molly Jean-Faster back, along with comedian Pete Dominic and Joe Pinion. Pete, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, let me read you a little bit more, because this is from the former... Um, <laughs> this, is from, this is the statement, the sworn under oath statement to the FBI from the alleged former roommate. He says, in 2016, I met Santos when I rented a room in his apartment in Florida. This is when and where I learned from him how to clone ATM and credit cards. Santos taught me how to skim card information and how to clone cards. He gave me all the material and taught me how to put skimming devices and cameras on ATM machines. 
So basically, Paige, <laughs> they, would put, they would like put a little camera on an ATM and it would read the card and they would also look at the PIN number that you were typing in. And then according to this roommate, they would take skim money out of the accounts. I had a roommate uh, that I, I used to steal food from. <laughs> so you understand that. I totally relate to this. He is the worst roommate. Every role he's ever played, he just chaffs whoever he's with, whoever he's hanging out with, he takes their stuff. This is a terrible crime to do, to take people's money, to skim a credit card. It creates all kinds, it's a serious crime. It creates all kinds of problems. And of course, he's allegedly involved with it, George Santos, with his roommate, who he went to visit and testify in good character for. And now he's sworn this against him. He is a gift for comedians. He is a gift for Democrats. He is terrible for America. And he should be in jail selling cigarettes pretty soon. But the guy is just still there doing his job. It's crazy. Crazy. I, 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 I like your title, Worst Roommate Ever, basically, is how you see him. <laughs> I thought I was bad. Yeah, no. I never skimmed anybody's credit cards well, with my roommate. That is impressive. Um, Joe, your thoughts on this? Look, anything that he's been accused of thus far in a silo by itself uh, is insane. (laughs) The fact that we have to keep talking about the increasingly insane is insane. And what we're not talking about are the people who live in NY3 who, in the midst of the runaway inflation, with half a million Americans at least 60 days behind on their car payments, uh, now have to deal with the fact that the county executive for Nassau uh, is now working in conjunction with Anthony D'Esposito in NY4, a whole district away, to take care of the entirety of the island because they refuse to work with George Santos because no one can trust the words that are coming out of his mouth. Santos has suggested taking those payments from from his constituents himself. Those <laughs> car payments, he, I think that's a helpful suggestion. But Again, you, you, the jokes, they write themselves. But, but Kevin I think, McCarthy could have stopped this any time he wanted and he didn't want to. And this yep. comes back to this is the reality. Right. We live in America. We live in a free society where you are innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. And while it is much likely the case (laughs) that much of this stuff is actually true, you set a crazy precedent when you just start saying he probably did it. So to heck with all. No, I understand. There's just a volume of problems. He's guilty. There's a volume, and we have proven that he did. I don't take any pleasure in saying this. It's the The thing that disturbs me isn't just the lies, but it's the recklessness of the lies. The kind of lies that can be easily disproven. It says something about his character and his ability to kind of navigate through life. And the the reason why I feel that people don't want to work with him isn't because, you know, he's lied as a politician because, hello, he's a politician. They're used to politicians lying. It's the kind of lies. They're so fantastical fantastical. that you really can't believe anything. But listen to this. I also want to play for you what he has said, his explanation for this, or denial (laughs) of this. You sure? You have to play it? I have it, yes. This is his denial today. (laughs) <laughs> I did exactly I was, as I was instructed at the time by law enforcement. I'm innocent, never did anything cr- of criminal activity, and I'm no mastermind of anything. Well, he's no mastermind. He said, I'm no mastermind of anything. <laughs> now, I find that to be an interesting denial. If I were being accused of something that I've never done, I would say, that's, that's crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. I would never do anything like that. I would not say I'm no mastermind, I'm no mastermind. of anything. This wasn't my idea. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Perhaps right. I may I have known. Right. But, but the other question is, like, would Nancy Pelosi keep this guy? If he were a Democrat, would Nancy Pelosi keep him in Congress? 
I don't think she would. I don't know just, about that. I, I, to be clear, I think the answer is she would. Um, but I but also what's your think, evidence of that? Like, when, when has she kept as somebody who has this? Well, we've never many seen anyone living the accused. secret life of Walter Mitty and Congress right. before. Right? <laughs> right? But the, the, the point is, that, again, I just think that you set a dangerous precedent when you start tossing people Understood. out of Congress who are duly yeah, elected. Yeah, and he's not even being There's no precedent. There is no precedent. No, there is no precedent. No, there is no precedent. No, there is no This man is unprecedented. He's Jewish. He's Jewish. I'm not his attorney. I'm not the spokesperson for the Santos campaign. I am simply a spokesperson for the rights and liberties that are codified in the Constitution of the United States of America and saying that the debt... It's not being tossed out. But this is my point. Is this highlighting is my... the, the constant stream of accusations <laughs> that living... somehow find themselves to him. Anybody who identifies as a Republican <laughs> should want him to go away immediately okay, because he be is the brand. He's the, entirety, the brand. The entirety yeah. of the Nassau GOP has effectively disavowed him. Yeah. I feel like the entirety of the New York State <laughs> Congressional Caucus has yeah. disavowed him. Right. Still yeah. there. Yeah, because they have literally no power to actually make him go away without effectively well, breaking three. the core tenets of this they don't. Do they Kevin McCarthy do does, do and he's he already has no he already has no committees. They could, right. vote. they could vote to kick him out. All right. And then and, and yeah. then and then who do we kick we out to next? Go. We Based on no laws being broken. Are you going to call him a slippery slope? There's an, ethics, <laughs> I don't, there's I, an ethics investigation that is being conducted right him. now. Um, ethics investigation into that sweater he keeps wearing. <laughs> what's under that? The, the fashion crime. The souls of all his right. constituents. Um, all right. Thank you all very much. <laughs> Stick around. The first Oscars since the slap heard around the world. And this time they have a crisis team on standby. <laughs> we'll explain. <laughs> All right, it's Oscar weekend, and everyone still, of course, has PTSD from last year when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock on stage. So how will the Oscars handle it this year? My panel is back, and joining us is CNN's entertainment reporter, Chloe Malas, best-selling author as of this week of the new book, Luck of the Draw, available everywhere now. Um, okay, so, Pete, if you were hosting the Oscars, yeah. as Jimmy Kimmel is... <laughs> I was asked. That's my name. No, I know. And then you said no, and Jimmy Kimmel said that's okay. Not, right. Usually um, he picks up after me. Yeah. That's right. How would you handle the addressing the slap of last year? I would say never hit a comedian. That's You would that's just actually we, give a warning. Yeah, yeah. No, I would make all kinds of jokes about that. This is what happens. I mean... Chris Rock did a, this great thing in the special, talking about how Will Smith is bigger and stronger than he is. But comedians, I'm a, I, I relate completely to what Chris Rock was saying. I mean, I got my butt kicked three times in my life. All three times, one punch was thrown, none by me, because I ran my mouth. But if I get an opportunity to go on stage, as we do, uh, you, you'd make sure you take the alpha out. So you say never mess with a comedian. If you're Kimmel, who is also a comedian, that's the whole thing. You side completely with the comedian comedian, not with the guy who slaps the comedian. Just never mess with that guy. And for ratings, you bring Chris Rock out. Fun tip for the Academy. Wouldn't that be neat if they had him come out? I know. Well, I think this year they're going to play it really safe, right? They picked Jimmy Kimmel because he's safe, because he knows, and the executive producer came out, said he knows how to handle a crisis. He's good at live television. That's what we need. They have a crisis team in place now. What does that even mean, they have a crisis team? They have PR 
are. They have people ready to release a statement. Uh, I read reports that maybe there are, there's extra security, but they are just ready for anything that could happen. I don't want somebody to release a statement. I want somebody to tackle the guy coming well, up to the they stage. They have George Santos on <laughs> the wings as well, I'm told. He may be there. Remember, Jimmy Kimmel has hosted before, but he is no stranger to drama. Remember, he, there was the best picture mix-up between La La Land and Moonlight. Right. So mm-hmm. anything can happen on this night. I hope he does address it and makes it really funny. I mean, I've even thrown out crazy theories because, like, you never know what's going to happen, right? Like, we think it's just going to be like, oh, just like all simple. We're all going to be bored and turn it off. Nope, not really. I think, what if Jada shows up? Jada's not going to show up. You don't know. <laughs> you just don't know what's going to happen. Are you writing? Why would you? This narrative sounds exciting. They should hire you. Guys. I am most excited for Best Picture, though. Okay. I, so to, let's pull that up. So here's uh, Best Picture. This is what's in the running. Um, all of, oh, well, I'm sure you can see those very yeah. clearly. <laughs> Top Gun. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yes, Top Gun. And this could Who's be. In that? Very funny. This could be the. Um, <laughs> Return Good fodder of the for Jimmy. Buster winning. Yep, Avatar. Hmm. Uh, Everything, everywhere, all at once leads nominations. Have you guys seen that movie? I did. You liked it. It was traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. But but it's, I it's a heavy lift. But I think it's though that this lift. could be the year of the blockbuster. So many people, like Steven Spielberg, has come out and praised. Top Gun, right? Like, this brought people back to the movies. It grossed over a billion dollars. Why are you supposed to give an Oscar? You're supposed to give an Oscar to the film that, like, was, quote, unquote, the best, not the one that was most popular. What about Titanic? Maverick was awesome. (laughs) What are you... Maverick was tired. The best film ever made, sir. It was boring and tired. I get the stunts. The stunts were fantastic, but I'm sorry. Tom Cruise... Being Tom Cruise at this particular juncture of life just doesn't work for Wait a minute. Anymore. Now who's being ageist? Yeah, I was going to say. No, I'm being specific. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being very specific. One of the things that I thought that Tom Cruise was really good at was winking at the audience. And I felt as if this particular version of Top Gun, he didn't wink at us. I think he was taking it a little too serious, and I didn't have any fun. Well, we're taking these award shows a little All too right, serious. Who, but who's going to win Best Actor? Okay, so it's between Austin Butler and Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser had this incredible transformation for the whale. Mm. Um, he pay, plays this obese person and um, who's going through a really tough time, and people are giving him a lot of praise. But Austin Butler, who played Elvis, I know you have opinions He's about his voice. He's still in character, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should give it to him. Just won the Golden Globe. Some people say that like something's up with his vocal cords. Like he can't, yeah. he can't, can't shake on the Elvis. Elvis. He can't un yeah. Elvis. Would you? If you played that role, I'd still be Elvis. When when I spoke with Angela Bassett last month, she told me that it took her like six or seven months to lose Tina Turner because Mm -hmm. she was so submerged in being Tina Turner at that particular point. And I think she was using her queen voice when she was telling me. So maybe she's Mm -hmm. still in character from from Black Panther as well. I I hope she wins uh, for Best Supporting Actress because nobody gives a speech like Angela Bassett. She knows how to give the perfect speech, and she is just, I think it's her time, right? So I, I'm really is excited that a, for her. Is that a pun? Because that's a line from the movie? Is it? It, it is your time. Oh, you know what? Everything well I do is intentional. Yes. So. That's, <laughs> that's about the quizzical look in your face. As we learned tonight, I wrote the Oscars. So. Yes, and you also wrote the fabulous new book. She's actually republished her grandfather's story. It's out now. Everyone, please check out. So good. I should just carry you book. with me everywhere. Yes. Free. I like being carried. <laughs> Luck of the draw, my story of the air war you in wrote? Europe. No. Uh, I, <laughs> best book I've ever read. It's really. It really is a wonderful story. Well done. Actually, yeah. 
<laughs> uh, all right, next. Have you ever been called ma'am? And were you... <laughs> have well, Ali, you, no, have, I have not. Have you uh, and been insulted? When did it turn from respectful to an insult? We dissect. <laughs> debating. <laughs> Here's the burning question that all women of a certain age wrestle with. Even the ladies on the Sex in the City reboot called And Just Like That. The question is, when do you call someone ma'am? <laughs> she goes like, who I am? I'm like, if I gotta say one. Come on! Sorry, ma'am. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm back with the panel. Do you mind, ma'am? I mean, I've been called worse. Really? <laughs> like what? <laughs> Not for cable television. Mm. But, I mean, I don't know. I, I, It is a little, maybe it is a little bit hostile. I mean. I don't think it's hostile. It's not that I'm, it's not that I'm um, offended. It's that I'm sad. <laughs> I'm Why? sad. Why? Why Because sad? there is a cutoff. There's a right. miss cutoff. When, when you transition from miss to ma'am, it right. says, you're old. Yeah. Well, you or do have respect. I hope. <laughs> you have your threshold because during the break, everybody heard, Allison got married. I called her madam. And she got, <laughs> that's where she draws the line. I like is, madam better than ma'am. Madam? No. Yeah. Really? Madam is yes. excited. The, the threshold is this. <laughs> right? If you drop something, you're in a parking lot, you drop something, and I see it. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to say? I don't know. Excuse hey, me. you. Pardon no. me. No, this is the problem. You bring up something important, Pete, because what's the the that region between Miss and Ma'am? Like at forty five years old, right. you're not Miss. <laughs> lady, you don't want to be Ma'am. Hey, lady, lady, you dropped. We have to check your ID first before we can engage yeah. in conversations. I'm with Allison here. For me, it's the energy. Like that clip that you just showed, yeah. Carrie was giving Ma'am energy, so you got called Ma'am. <laughs> If she had given Miss energy, she would have been called Miss. I mean, if she had given Madam energy, she would have been but, called Madam. But I would say one thing, which is that men don't have the same kind of age cutoff. And I mean, I think that's a real thing. That is not true. No, but you can be called Sir from 30 to 80. Yeah. Yeah, right? but how we feel about it but you is like the conversation. Sir, don't you? Then we don't, what are you talking about? There's nothing you can say to us that's offensive. Well, I didn't say offensive, but how we feel. This, I don't feel the, anything. The conversation is about Mr. how you... Sir, fine. The, the conversation age. is supposed to be how you, how you internalize and process being called this word and you listen to a lot of men when they hear sir they will repeat I'm not sir that's my dad so they're reminding you that we're young as well we have that same sort of dynamic it just plays differently I I also think men are allowed to sort of age in a way that society adores and women as they get older they're you know people are impressed if you could still you know I don't know I I mean I think that we all there's just a young bias we like young men and women personally I, I, I think that People used to think it as a term of endearment. I think now, to your point, there are women who are trying to, quote-unquote, reclaim their time. Uh, No pun intended. Uh, But I think at the end of the day, uh, look, from my perspective, it's become like the cultural equivalent of, do you say, soda or pop? Or Coke, right? Mm. And I well, think I don't if you're, feel like if, any of those are insulted if you say <laughs> soda pop or Coke. Well, look, I think below the Mason Dixon line, I think you're free to use the word man. We're talking about impunity. soda and <laughs> a, a woman's yeah. identity, though. I think they're different. All right, <laughs> that, well, let's leave it at that. that yeah, I can't think yes, anything, ma'am. I can't. <laughs> oh, no. I can't think of anything more profound. All right. <laughs> meanwhile, <laughs> Colin Kaepernick speaking out about his childhood being the adoptive black son of white parents. What he's saying, and the panel's take on it. That's next. 
Colin Kaepernick is speaking out about his childhood and explaining how his white adoptive parents at times echoed some racist ideas. His comments were part of a CBS interview about his new graphic novel detailing his high school years. I know my parents loved me, but there were still very problematic things that I went through. I think it was important to show that, no, this can happen in your own home and how we move forward collectively while addressing the racism that is being perpetuated. He took cues from his icon, basketball star Allen Iverson, who he said wore his blackness like a suit of armor. And teenage Kaepernick wanted cornrows to match. He's getting what roles, his mom asked? Oh, your hair's not professional. Oh, you look like a little thug. Your mom become. said that to you. Yeah. And those become spaces where it's like, okay, how do I navigate this situation now? But it also has informed why I have my hair long today. CNN attempted to reach out to Rick and Teresa Kaepernick for comment, but did not receive a response. So, I mean, he brings up a lot of interesting issues here. LZ, what do you hear? It's messy. It's messy because he's right. You know, he is right. I just personally would not have chosen to say that about my parents who saved my life and raised me. You know, I'm not saying his argument and his perspective is wrong. You know, I'm in an interracial marriage. I've heard comments made that I've had to check by people who love me. Mm-hmm. He's right. That, is, that does exist. But I'm not going to write a book about my relatives and put them on blast like that. Yeah. Although I guess I just did. <laughs> <laughs> Literally put your <laughs> But I didn't write a book. I'm not going to profit from it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's lazy. I think that if you look at what has transpired here, every single black child in this country with parents that love them have been told you have to be twice as good to get half as far, has been told that people will judge you by your appearance. There is the reality of, is that something that we should still have to deal with in this nation? Should you as a black person have to consider what the name you want to name your child have an impact on the resume that is written on? We shouldn't have to have those conversations. But it is a reality of America. And you have to deal with the realities of the world in which we live today if you're going to achieve the world that we all seek tomorrow. And so I think for me, listening to him talk about things that parents of any race unfortunately have to talk about black children in a kind of retroactive view, you know, in a not looking at it in a 2022 world where we have had a black president, where we have seen the horrors of George Floyd up front. We know uh, in undeniable manners uh, that the horrors, the evil sins of the origins of slavery and racism, they still have a half-life that lingers with us to this day. All of that is real, but I just think it's a clumsy way to deal with a real conversation that parents across the spectrum are unfortunately forced to have with too many black children every single day. I think it's, I thought it was, taken out of context, it might sound a little bit bad, but I think it's really important. I think that parents who adopt kids who don't look like them try to do a good, a really good job of learning about what that means and learning cultural things. I mean, for me, I won't talk about race, but I have daughters. And so I thought it was really important and still think it's very important that I don't say and do things that create uh, false expectations or that that don't promote gender equity for my daughters. Oh, you throw like a girl. Don't cry like a girl. Those are mistakes. All of us here our parents made mistakes. That doesn't mean that they weren't great parents. And I think that that's a fair point. But I think that you're fascinating on something that's really interesting, which is I think when he was adopted during that era, 
um, the expectation was that he would assimilate into right. the white family. He was, I think that that was, you know, they, they were uncomfortable with him when he had cornrows. That he was supposed yeah. to assimilate and look like their community. Right. And I think now times have changed, to your point, and he's talking about how they could have done what you're talking about, which has been more sensitive to his culture well, and ancestry. I think it's also a broader conversation. I mean, look, we're just looking at right now the unfortunate reality of what's happening with John Morant and the NBA, right? This notion that there is a toxicity that has been, you know, by media uh, thrust onto blackness. It has very little to do with being black. Uh, you look at what happened even with Allen Iverson, what he had to deal with as a grown man making millions because of this quote-unquote wearing blackness as an armor. That's not his fault. It's still an awful blemish. But fast forward, they changed the entire dress code of the NBA because of Allen Iverson. They changed the entire dress code of the NFL because of some of these things that people were warning against, yeah. those false characterizations of black people. Hold on, LZ, because I want to bring in um, an expert who can really relate to this topic. Rhonda Rorda was adopted by a white family when she was two years old. She's the author of the book, In Their Voices, Black Americans on Transracial Adoption. She also worked as a consultant on the hit show, This Is Us, and that, of course, has a plot line about a white couple adopting a black baby. Rhonda, thanks so much for being here. So, I mean, because you share this experience with Colin Kaepernick, what did you think of him speaking out about his parents this way? I would say it takes a lot of courage, Mm -hmm. Um, but I applaud him because uh, transracial adoption is bold, it's complex, and it's context tied. Mm -hmm. And so when many of us uh, were adopted in the early 1970s, the National Association of Black Social Workers went on the record saying this is essentially cultural genocide and these kids may not be associated uh, with with people of color because they're living in white spaces. And so the question is, would they be able to uh, grow and develop into healthy uh, individuals aware of their ethnicity and connected to the black community? And then right after that, social scientists, most of them were white, Uh, wrote studies that looked at uh, sort of what uh, uh, Colin Kaepernick is going through. Um, They looked at Black and biracial and also Korean children who were raised in white homes. And what we knew then, when you look at the traditional research, is that most of us are living in white spaces. So we have no racial mirrors. And I, I would, I would, hope that we can be a little bit compassionate to the adoptee and understand that we love our parents, but yet we're trying to figure out how to be uh, Black, authentic, love our parents, but love ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're trying to figure out who we are. And uh, we're trying to, some of us, trying to honor our ancestral heritage. So... (laughs) When we're trying to figure this out and our parents are living in predominantly white spaces with white friends uh, and we don't see anybody that looks like us on our um, at our dinner table, we're putting a whole lot of weight and burden on the shoulders of um, transracial adoptees. And so I think that um, authors, activists, 
like uh, Colin and so many other adult adoptees out here who are trying to honor our parents, but also honor ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and Rhonda, I, I have a question for you. we have to realize how bold that is. Yeah, I appreciate all of that. But my, one of my questions is because I read your notes, you said that there were times that you, I don't know if you really thought you were white, but there was a colorblindness to your childhood. So explain what that felt like. Yes. Okay, so, so Allison, so basically the foundation of transracial adoption is on a colorblind platform, and it's tied to federal policy, the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act of 1994, married with the 1996 inter-ethnic provision. And it basically says we have black and brown kids languishing in foster care, we need to push them through, and if there are white families, this is a pathway through. So many of us were raised not to see color. But in my case, even though I grew up in Washington, D.C., I was living in a bubble with my family. My father is from Netherlands, so he obviously liked to speak Frisian and Dutch and wanted us to know about his heritage. Um, what I'm saying is we, we need to honor our heritage as well. So mm -hmm. when we come into these families, we have our own DNA. I'm I'm linked also to a rich legacy as well as black family members. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I'm also part of my adopted family. Mm -hmm. Okay, Rhonda, stand by because I want to get our panel's take on it. Molly? I thought that was so moving and interesting and important. And I thought she was, I mean, that's just, I, I was like welling up a little bit. I mean, that's, that she's, you know, that's what we have to do, and that's what we all do growing up. I mean, I really, wow. I think those were all, you know, also really enlightening to hear her talking about this. But I also think this, from what I've read, a lot of the same uh, kind of outcomes can happen with with biracial. If if your parents, like Barack Obama, always talked about, you know, his white grandparents and like the the racism that that your white father or or you know, if you're biracial, I think there's a lot of similarity. I want to know if, if Rhonda thinks there's similarities with that. That's my question. Go ahead, Rhonda. There are similarities. Um, I think, though, where there's differences is that so many of us as adoptees are dealing with trauma, loss, grief. We've been pulled from our ethnic communities, and we've been placed in white families and white spaces. So if I'm coming from Ethiopia in the winter, and get dropped in Michigan when we just had some snowfall. Um, my body's in shock. And now I'm with people that look different. Um, they have a different rhythm. They um, have different values. And we're asked with this transracial adoption policy to suck it up, to smile, to be grateful mm. because we just got saved. Mm. And so what I'm asking and what I think um, <laughs> Uh, Colin is saying is that we're not projects. We're human beings with a spirit, a soul, and a body. Mm -hmm. And we are connected to a legacy. So white parents, I think, um, in doing um, parenting should also recognize they have an onus to do right by us uh, and to do right by the families in which we came from. I have a mama and a daddy, but I also have my adoptive family. And you can do both and. You can love your your adoptive family, but 
we just want to love ourselves too. Elsie, mm-hmm. uh, it's so interesting what she's saying because I think that there used to be a feeling in the 70s and 80s, we're doing right by this child right. by adopting them right. out of languishing in the foster care system or out of poverty, wherever they are. So we're doing right by them. We're doing an altruistic thing. It's a win-win. But it sounds like what Rhonda's saying and what Colin Kaepernick is saying is that that's actually not enough for the adoptee. Well, no, and honestly, it's not enough for the parents either, if you really think about it. You know, I have locks, obviously. So one of the things that's always been really cool is when you see the white parent coming in with their black adopted child, because you see parents who are actually making the effort, you know, realizing that, you know what, I don't understand how to work with this texture of hair, but I'm going to go out of my comfort zone to make sure that my child's okay. I love seeing moments like that. I'm not sure, you know, I hadn't read the book. Obviously, I don't know Carla Kaepernick's total story with with the graphic novel. When I said it was messy, it it comes from a personal place. I personally would not talk about my adopted parents publicly in that fashion. Hearing from Rhonda is such a great example of bringing on an expert in a situation that, that, and what it does is it allows us to realize that we in the media, we can take one sentence out of context and we can talk about it, but the truth is the context is brought to us by an expert who has this lived experience and it puts a whole whole different story to what Colin Kaepernick said hearing from Rhonda. I think that's great. Well, I think again, I think that the broader context is that we do have plenty of black children who are languishing in the foster system. We know that once you've been placed more than two times, uh, the life outcomes deteriorate precipitously. And white children, right? I believe, are adopted out of the foster care system maybe three times more than Correct, black. right. And so there are obviously there are organizations like the Harvest of Hope put together by, you know, Pastor Buster Soares out in Jersey to try to figure out how do we get more black parents uh, and black young people engaged in fostering young people. But beyond that, again, I just think uh, to your point, it's messy. In the way that the interview was done, right, I think even when we talk about the comparison to uh, former President Obama, uh, there was a broader context, a more nuanced conversation, because at the end of the day, um, I don't see the harm in parents trying to protect a child from the very real dangers of being a black child living in America. And if we're going to have the conversations on Monday about having to know that if the police show up, you want to have your hands at, you know, at, at, uh, on the steering wheel and on the dashboard, and we're going to have the real conversations about making no sudden moves. And all of a sudden, at the same time, we're going to start giving other people whiplash for somehow saying, you're trying to protect children from this reality. It is a mixed message. It is, in many ways, an unnuanced message that leads to less people putting themselves out on that limb to do what his parents did which ultimately led to him having opportunities most people could never even dream of. Thank you all very much for this. Rhonda, thank you. So, yeah, we're, we're out of time, um, but I really appreciate uh, all of the context that you gave us and you sharing your yeah. personal story. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Allison. Thanks for being here. So Colin Kaepernick, as you know, in part helped start the whole conversation about what some people call woke now. Uh, and now Ron DeSantis, of course, is drumming up that into a culture war. And the White House today is hitting back. We'll talk about all of that. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis making his first trip to Iowa. And surprise, he brought up woke ideology. What we've seen is a great American exodus from states governed by leftist politicians imposing leftist ideology and causing their societies to decay, to crumble. It is wrong 
to tell a second grader that they were born in the wrong body. It is wrong to have gender ideology imposed in our schools. And in Florida, we don't let it happen. Just let our kids be kids. So we've got to fight if we see it in medicine or the universities or the corporations. You can't just say, let it go, because then we're going to be living under an oppressive wokeocracy. Our state is where woke goes to die. And my panel is back with me. Yes, Pete? Oh, it's just, I, I'm just nauseous watching him. He is so filled with hatred. And he is so spreading that hatred around this country. And I just know so many people right now that are so afraid for their kids who identify as trans, for themselves who identify as trans. And not only that, like LGBT people and, of course, people of color. It is just so dangerous but, what he I is mean, doing. I mean, people in Florida, as he has pointed out, seem to like it. People well, are walking to Florida and uh, his, his ratings We are have high. a lot of people in this country who are filled with hate, filled with the fear that drives that. And this, this the idea, the, the, the word woke, yeah. I hear that word and I hear something completely different. Right. And, and we, we have talked about that, that it means something different to everybody. But I don't know that it's Hatred. I mean, some people really like that he is pushing back on these cultural changes. To, 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 to talk about kids, to say let kids be kids, and then you're not letting them actually talk about who they are, be who they are. It is despicable, and he's using children, and it's it's horrible. And, and coming from the Republicans who are constantly talking about uh, protecting kids, they are putting kids in such danger around this country. Yeah. Well, I guess it's a settled issue. Um, look, I, I think that woke means different things to different people. Specificity of language is important. I have said and maintained that whether you're talking about woke or CRT or any number of words, they're just a colloquial catch-all uh, to encapsulate all the things that people have issues with, their grievances, etc. I think to your point, if you're talking about uh, these issues, I think that there are a lot of people who are not filled with hate uh, who think it's concerning that we would actually be having permanent uh, physical alterations to children before well, they can even consent to something. Yeah. happening. Well, it, that, that, does, well, that actually is happening. I mean, so, I, think I, I, I think there's a lot of fighting things that don't exist, but I would say, I mean, I don't think second graders are being told they were born in the wrong body. Ever. I mean, that's not how it's Ever. supposed to well, if, if somebody's doing that, that person should be fired because that's not how here's it works. I would Every say, time we bring but, footage of it happening, people say it's a one No teacher right? is no, telling I, the kids. I have yet to see any footage of that. No footage of a teacher saying well, I we, would also just say the people who remove the books from the classrooms and they and they take the books out of libraries, those are usually not the good guys. But hold on. I have, a, I have a political question about him, LZ. Is, is, it, is he in danger? Is Governor DeSantis in danger of becoming a one-trick pony? This has been very, very successful for him in Florida, but now he's in Iowa and he's, say, he's playing the hits again. Mm-hmm. And maybe he's just introducing it to a national crowd, but it's starting to sound, I mean, maybe because we play it so much, it is starting to sound awfully familiar. It is awfully familiar, but I don't think it's a one-trick pony, and I don't think it's necessarily hurting his campaign. And I'm assuming this is part of the campaign, right? That's just, he hasn't officially announced, but come on. Um, Because of the hundreds of bills all around the country. So there's an audience for this. So even if he's repeating himself, he knows there's many states with a lot of people who want to hear that message. And I do think it's a good opportunity now for the administration, as well as other grassroots leaders, to push back with narratives. Well, here, hold on. Let me just play this because here is the administration. So this is White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. When Republicans 
extreme Republicans, these MAGA Republicans, uh, don't agree um, with an issue or with policy, they don't bring forth something that's going to either have a, a good faith conversation, they go to this conversation of woke. But that is not actually policy. That what, they, what that turns into is hate. Go ahead, Molly. Uh, my question is, you're try so DeSantis is trying to out-Trump Trump, and he's using books to do it. I'm not sure the base is going to want that. I don't think he is using books to do it. I think that they're using books as an example. And we talked about this yesterday. Every time you end up having parents show up at a PTA conference to read a book that has been given to their children, that then they have to cut off the microphone because it's too explicit. Wait, to when be, does that uh, happen? That, doesn't that happen. does happen. No, so, it doesn't. Look, I, I think, I mean, again, we just have to be honest here, right? Every time I, we have I these have conversations... I have a lot of children. I have been I, to their schools. I, 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 never, I've I, I'm, never I'm, seen anything I mean, like that. It, it happened in Virginia. It's part of the reason why Glenn Youngkin became the governor of the state of Virginia. So oh, yeah, I, here's, Glenn, what I'm, yeah. here's what I'm just saying, right? Even if your argument is that it's not happening that often, the fact that when it does happen, people pretend that it doesn't but exist. Also, but it also right? has the, to do the, the, with the, what these, your threshold is, what your comfort level is, because there are lots of books, as, I, as we've talked about, that kids are reading in high school that they're quite comfortable with or they're teachers, but in some I, other schools they're not. I, I would agree. No, I just, I I just <laughs> think, I, I think that, again, to your point, right, we, there are so many issues in this country that we're not talking about. We're talking about this because it moves the needle politically. For better or for worse, we're here, 11.25 well, Eastern ha- Time, and we're talking about a man in Iowa who has yet to declare for president. I, I, I talked talk to the president of the Florida Education Association, largest teachers union in Florida. Conservatives in Florida are, doing, are, are feeling exactly what Molly just said. They do not want books to be taken okay. out. That, we have to leave it there. It's been a very busy week in the news. Have you been paying attention to everything that's happened? We're going to quiz the panel on what they know. But before that, CNN's presentation of HBO's Overtime with Bill Maher right after this. Now I want to turn it over to our friends at HBO. Each Friday after Real Time with Bill Maher, Bill and his guests answer viewer questions and they bring their unique perspectives to the topics driving the national conversation. We're excited to bring you this lively discussion every Friday night. We're first with it. Here is Overtime with Bill Maher. Okay, here we are on CNN. However that happened, we're glad to be here. We have author of the New York Times newsletter, John McWhorter, and we have Emmy Award-winning producer and journalist, Josh Kierengel. Okay, here are the questions I hold in my hand. <laughs> Let me do Karnak tonight instead of... Uh, Nobody under 75. <laughs> well, they see it on YouTube. Uh, you're right, they don't even do that. All right, with a, with a former CDC director testifying before Congress that gain-of-function labs probably caused the pandemic... Uh, should we be rethinking our approach to scientific research? Well, I don't know about scientific research, but gain of function. I don't know if people know what gain of function is, but that is how possibly this escaped. And it's very, very scary to me because gain of function means we're taking the virus, manipulating it in a lab to make it worse so we could study that if, if the worst happens, which does happen when it escapes. <laughs> I, I would say this about that. I'll just jump in. You can argue. If we think nuclear power 
we can't have it. Some people think that because it's great, except for that one in a thousand chance that it goes bad, it goes so bad. Isn't this the same thing, gain of function? Isn't it very similar to nuclear? Yeah, it feels pretty self-evident that we ought to have the highest possible restrictions for this kind of research because, the, you know, I come from a people who always worry about the worst possible outcome. This is the worst possible outcome. Put that right. first. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if it happens that the virus evolves way worse naturally, we'll deal with it then. But to bring it about seems crazy. This, uh, this should have been really rethought, yes. It's exactly like the nuclear issue. I don't see how the issues are different. All right, what impact, if any, can we expect the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, oh yes, to have on our financial system? If you didn't see, I saw this has just happened in a Silicon Valley Bank, one of the biggest banks in Silicon Valley, obviously a tech, obviously they're, they're tech, right? That's what they finance. I think the biggest bank failure since the 2008 crash, I guess we should have seen it coming because there's been a lot of layoffs and bit, Bitcoin. Is this, is this, is this up what this bank is, Bitcoin? So the Silicon Valley Bank is this 40-year-old bank from the Valley. It was designed and funded originally to, to make sure that startups, which have a tough time getting money, could get some money. If this were called the Lehigh Valley Bank, we would not really be paying that much attention to it. It's the Silicon Valley Bank part that's sexy, but the truth is it's a small bank. So it's got about 150 billion in capital. JP Morgan has three trillion. The, the only reason to be concerned about it is the knock-on effects of confidence, but it's a small bank that got caught short. It's the oldest story in the world. But are, are, are we bailing out Bitcoin losers? No, it, it's not, okay. this is not about Bitcoin. Right. This is about a shortfall where they misaligned their bond spending oh. with the amount coming in. They lost depositor confidence. It happened overnight. It's possible right. this gets contained. Is it absolutely central to the startup industry, or is it just a bank that some it, startups? It used to be 40 years ago. It is but no now, longer no central. Longer, right. no. Yeah. Speaking of tech, Elon Musk just announced that he plans to build his own utopia in Austin, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> it just gets a laugh on the premise. There. <laughs> With the affordable, affordable housing for his employees. I mean, he is a visionary. He does. I mean, we didn't see electric cars or relandable rockets or you know living on Mars. I mean, this guy thinks big. Uh, what are your, what are your thoughts? Uh, by the way, if I was going to build Utopia, all respect to Austin, I wouldn't put it there. I, I mean, that's just me. And I like Austin. I like Austin a lot. Sure. I, lacks, I keep it weird every time I go. <laughs> he lacks stick to and I'm not sure that he's thought hard enough about how a utopia would actually work beyond the kind of Disney World beautiful picture that it would be in the beginning. I don't trust him to do this. I think I'd rather see a bunch of people put their heads together. But it's an there's no look. such thing as utopia. How about that? Well, yeah, that don't, don't, don't ever use the word utopia right. or think you can create a utopia under it. What a fool's errand that Everybody is. Everybody would be Talk happy about an over-promising con man. I'm going to build a... Yeah. <laughs> also, like, uh, utopia is, is, is a personal concept, and my right. personal concept isn't the same as Elon's, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And so, like, my <laughs> first thought... Yeah, my first thought was like, well, I definitely will not be living there. <laughs> <laughs> well... I can think of worse places to live and worse people to live under. Uh, with college enrollment down nationwide, yes, I read that today. College enrollment, kids are finally getting the hint. Skip college, it's a bunch of bullshit. Well, I'm editorializing over, oh, sorry. <laughs> 
all right, twice in five weeks I messed up. Uh, two out of five, I'm, I'm gonna get better. Are young people catching on to the, yes, to the fact that, yes, yes, card. <laughs> I agree with you, card. Are young people catching on to the fact that college may not be worth the investment? They better. There is too much goddamn You're in academia. college. Oh, Lord. There's too much what? Too much goddamn college. Right. I teach Stop in, swearing. in a university. We're on CNN. No, I forgot. <laughs> but, um, no, there shouldn't be this idea that to be a normal American is to spend four years living in a dormitory pretending to like Shakespeare. That right. starts uh, <laughs> after World War II. That idea that everybody's supposed to go to college, everybody is supposed to get a good, solid, high school education. That's another rant. But then you're supposed to go out and ply a trade unless you want to do the rather rarefied thing of go to college. That's one way that the old days were better than now. It's mission creep that everybody goes to college. And it's not true that if you don't go to college, you are going to be selling pencils on the street. There are many perfectly legitimate careers. We just need to learn how to talk about it more. Right. The other thing that Craig not agree more... There's, this, there's a, another phenomenon that I think is fascinating, which is kids are learning how to do stuff professionally from YouTube. Mm, that's a good point. And so if you are a coder, more often than not, you're watching a 90-minute video wow. on how to use CSS. Wow. And it's moving at your own pace, frequently much faster than the education system can possibly get you there. Go to school. One example from this weekend, the Daniels, the guys who directed everything everywhere all at once, they went to film school, and they are the ones who say, don't ever go to film school. Watch YouTube oh, totally. and learn it. And so, well, that's for sure. That, that's for yeah. sure true about the arts. About the arts, for sure. You don't need school for the arts. In fact, they MFA, probably make it work. Yeah, right. I mean, either you have it or you don't. I mean, so, it's just not something you can yeah, learn in school. A, a PhD and a guy with an MA. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but I'm still. Yeah, no, don't be like us. Don't right. be like what, us. But, okay, yeah. so you can learn that on YouTube. But what about, you mentioned Shakespeare. Now, was that, were you, let me read into that. Were you saying Shakespeare <laughs> is past his prime? I was I being mean, hyperbolic, but. Do you still like Shakespeare? I think it, Shakespeare is a swell guy, but you should learn. <laughs> no. You should learn about him in high school. All right. of that should be packed in. Much more should be packed into the high school education. Maybe even have a 13th grade. Then, if you're going to go into finance, go work in a bank. You can work in a bank when you're 19. That's right. the way I, I would like it to be. Shakespeare's great. But the four years where your mind is being expanded, expand your mind when you're a teenager. Then go get a job. There's nothing abnormal about it. Oh, they're, ex <laughs> they're expanding their minds when they're expanding. In many ways. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the problem. Okay, uh, Walmart just announced that they're closing their last two stores in Portland. Oh. In, in part due to rampant theft. Does this reflect a lax attitude toward crime in liberal cities? Uh, well, Portland, yeah, Portland's one of those cities I could see where Walmart would <laughs> have yep. some problems. <laughs> would be like, it's just not worth it. But, I mean, but gosh, that says something not good about this country, that stores are saying, gosh, we're just going to give up rather than, we, we can't even make a go of it because the, the security situation is so poor. I mean, that, I, I don't want to live in that country where we can't keep a Walmart open in a major city. <laughs> Am I wrong about that? No, no, that? Portland, uh, I mean, Portland has a problem. Like, Port Portland is devastated. It is chaos town. I'm and going so, there soon. How bad? It's bad. You should, <laughs> you should be careful. Really? Even at the comedy show? <laughs> well, I mean, I would say especially at the comedy show. I mean, <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> and what? 
What if, what if I need shaving cream at the last minute? Where am I going to go? Airport, man. Airport. Walmart's no, closed. The, you, and also, if you go into a store in Portland, it, the shaving cream and the deodorant is behind one behind of those locked those things, and you have to press things. a button to get someone to open it for you. It, for, for shaving cream. New York is yeah. full of that right now. Yeah, that's, yeah that's New York normal. has. I'm beginning yeah. to order that stuff on Amazon because I get tired of waiting right. for that person. As if come. Amazon didn't need any more help. <laughs> I feel guilty right. about yeah. it. It's, yeah. yeah, right. No, it's, you know, actually, large stores moving away, especially from center cities, that's 50 years old because of crime. It's an old story, and right. it's hard to fix crime in a real way without draconian measures that often create more harm than help. But no, that's an, that's, that's an old story. I'm not, I'm not surprised. What surprises me is that there were Walmarts sitting in what would be considered central Portland, because it certainly wouldn't work in Philadelphia, Cincinnati, or from what I hear, even Denver. Well, I never missed a stand-up show. I always loved Portland, and I'm going there. I'm not sure when it is, but look it up on my website. All right. Thank you, CNN. Thank you, guys. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. And you can watch Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday nights on HBO at 10 p.m. Then you can watch Overtime right here on CNN Friday nights at 11.30. And we'll be right back. Okay, you guys are ready. I can see that. It's all very exciting. It's Friday night, and you know what that means. It's quiz night. Let's see what my panelists remember from this week's news stories. Now, guys, here are the rules. You're going to, when I count to three, you're going to turn around your answer because I don't want any cheating this time like last week. Okay. Smiley cheating. Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah, All right. So, and so did I. Um, okay, I was, here we go. I was so embarrassed. Now, question number one. In Chris Rock's new comedy special, he A, forgave Will Smith, B, recreated the slap, or C, joked about entanglements. Okay, one, two, three. Hmm. Okay, you all got that right. Very good. Okay, next. Uh, Novak Djokovic can't play in a U.S. tournament because A, he has a torn Achilles, B, he's unvaccinated, C, the tournament spelled his name wrong. One, two, three. Hmm. This might be too easy for you guys. You guys are too smart for this. That is B. You're right. Why are viewers telling me to hold mine in front of my face? That's me. (laughs) Okay, next. Here we go. After Donald Trump's inauguration, Michelle Obama said she A, Went straight to McDonald's. B, went out for drinks with George Bush. C, cried uncontrollably for 30 minutes. One, two, three. Along with the rest of them. Oh, okay. It was C, cried uncontrollably for 30 minutes. I just wanted to be A. Thank you. (laughs) Fair enough. You're playing a different game, and I appreciate that. I just wanted it to be A. I like that a lot. Okay, Um, here we go. Um, Next question. Which country has ruled... Flipping the bird, a God-given right. A, Canada, B, the United States, or C, France. One, two, three. No, no, you cannot be lucky. Choose one, choose one. All right, what does Molly say? (laughs) Okay, Okay, uh, A, but Joe says C. Believe it or not, it is A, Canada. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean... I would have Shocked. thought it was the United States because, you know, New Jersey recently <laughs> named the middle finger the, the state bird. <laughs> they did. for that. Okay, meanwhile, next question. Um, this week, it was revealed that Tucker Carlson said this about Donald Trump. <laughs> A, I hate him passionately. B, I love him passionately. Or C, he's terrible at golf. 
One, two, three. He said he hates Donald Trump. Yeah. And also, yeah, you all were right. You know what? And he's probably also as bad. If he said, yeah, but if he said he's terrible at golf, I think Donald Trump would have been even more insulted. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, next question. Uh, This week, Governor Newsom announced he would boycott A, In N Out Burger, B, Walgreens, C, the Oscars. One, two, three. Oh, okay. Are you now here? Are you doing the thing again, LZ? No, I have no idea what Gavin's up to. Yeah, because oh, okay. they won't well, sell the, uh, the after uh, the abortion pill. Right. And, uh, Walgreens won't sell it in states where you can't get an abortion. So the, the state of California is like, well, guess what? We won't do business with you, Walgreens. Oh, Fifth oh, largest good, well, good, economy. Good for you, Gavin. That's right. But I appreciate that. Okay, so you said <laughs> C, the Oscars. That's a good guess. Okay. I thought he was mad about woman queen like the rest of us. <laughs> Maverick. Okay. Next question. This week, Oklahoma voters rejected a ballot measure to A, lower the drinking age to 18, B, legalize recreational marijuana, or C, bring the state's speed limit up to 85 miles per hour. One, two, three. You're cheating. I, I'm always. I what? Know. Well, you have, you're hiding <laughs> the answers like we're in grade school, Allison. I can't wonder why you were leaning like that. That's so weird. <laughs> Did I win? What? Well, through cheating, yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> but Pete, I, I actually do know what it would be like to sit next to you in high school. This is, yeah. thank you. This is yeah. really I know, and I'd be sitting next to you because you were probably super smart, <laughs> and I would pay you for the answers. Yep, excellent. Well done. Um, okay, guys, um, how much time do we have left? Oh, all right. Does anybody have any other uh, question they'd like in a news quiz? In a news quiz? You guys, oh, well, first of all, you guys won. All three of you tied. You cheated, but all three of you tied. Yeah. And LZ, you, yes. I think, threw the, you threw the game, and you took the, I, a two-point loss. The, the idea of Michelle Obama going to McDonald's after the inauguration just sounds wonderful to me. <laughs> it does, but don't you also like her going out for drinks with George Bush? No. Not as much. No, not as much. Yeah. Really? Not as much. No. I like that she did what a lot of people did, we except all for did. not as yeah. long. I cried longer. Yeah, and then <laughs> then I drank heavily. So you did you did B and C. Yes, yeah. I cried and drank. And okay, it was tough. It was a tough time. George W. Bush. And right. I drank yeah. with George W. Bush. Excellent. Yeah, okay, which well is that... weird because he drank soda, of course. <laughs> Got it. That's soda. right. Good for him. understood. Yeah. All right, so thank fun. you. We'll be right back. Air Force One is getting a new paint job. The color scheme for the next Air Force One, selected by President Biden, was unveiled today. It's not the one that President Trump had wanted. You might recall that Donald Trump announced a darker red, white, and blue design in 2018, but that one was rejected because it would have required additional engineering. It turns out that that darker blue paint threatened to overheat the sophisticated electronic components on board. So that was scrapped. And if you're thinking, hey, this new Air Force One looks a lot like the old Air Force One, you are correct. Really, there's just a darker shade of blue around the nose. This color scheme stays true to the same basic design the iconic aircraft has sported since JFK was in office. Thanks so much for watching, everyone. Have a wonderful weekend, and our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.